so this um, little journey happened to me in January when Anne and I were down in Port Arthur. Um, we actually visited Tasmania, um, hired a camper van, big adventure, drove around and we went to Port Arthur. Um, we both love history. Who's been to Port Arthur? All of us. Okay, good. Oh, were you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, for those, for those who are listening on the tape and for those who are overseas, Port Arthur is in Tasmania right at the end of Australia and a um, little island which has a dark history, a very dark history really. Um, and because there was this infamous convict settlement at Port Arthur. And um, of course that tragically was... Uh, repeated in the modern days with the um, massacre that happened at Port Arthur about, what, when was it, 25 years ago? Um, Australia's, Australia's only um, you know, really manic um, modern day gun, gun slaughter, which America has all the time. And of course, Australia, I mean, that's one of the great things John Howard did was ban, ban guns. And of course, I think Australia's the envy of about 40% of America as a result, why can't we do something like that? But um, I don't know what you guys found, but you know, certainly we found it is like a journey into the, it is a journey into the dark side of the human mind. Um, lost, lost people. Uh, the, um, the jailers and the soldiers and the um, Authorities who were creating the prison were far more well-intentioned than history gives them credit for. You know, certainly the guide who took us around made that plain. You know that it suits tourism to turn it into some kind of gothic uh, evil, but in fact they were, um, as you probably know, you know certainly that big circular prison. There, there was a great deal of for that for that era advanced psychological research into how to rehabilitate. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, what, what, what do you do with a criminal mind and is it capable of being re, uh, reformed or not? And um, one of the big transformations that happened there, which was rather chilling, is they found, because as you know, they used to whip, whip them um, to within an inch of their life and beyond in some cases. Um, but the scourging proved, uh, proved almost to be a mark of honour amongst thieves. You know, they, they couldn't break the spirit of some of these people. But they found solitary confinement did. And that's where they built that big oval prison and put people into salt and just broke them. So, you know, we were going through this and, and my mind was as it often is, at a, at a secondary level, just pondering about the talks and the views of hope and hell I was thinking about. Uh, and, and we came into this building um, and I'll tell you the story of what happened in my mind over the next 15 to 30 minutes. But, but in a way, what, what I'm doing it is, is as an answer to... Um, this slide, which is 
we introduced this slide called the doctrine of apocatastasis, the consequences and problems, okay? It just, it, it does seem to kind of tilt a lot of assumptions and positions we would have as evangelical Christians and demands they be somewhat rethought. And that in, that in itself is discomforting. Um, and, and this slide is merely repeating some of those tiltings. I think we began with evangelism. So, you know, what's the point of evangelism if you believe or suspect in a, in a kind of universal salvation? Doesn't it defeat the motives of wanting to share if, if, it, if nobody's going to hell and eternal torment? Um, a second one is uh, probably, you know, it's a second one that might be a bit closer. Uh, the elect and the church. So what's it mean to be the elect? What does it mean to be part of the church? Um, uh, is, is that pointless? Uh, are, uh, you know, th there seems to be a fair amount of language in the New Testament that says there is an inclusion and an exclusion. So what... I found that those very useful categories. That, and these, this number two was particularly swirling around in my mind, inclusion and exclusion. You know, in other words, do we have no longer any such thing as uh, included and excluded? Um, and um, the third one was conversion, the gift of the Spirit. You know, what's the point of this? By the way, this third one, I would say, to be honest with you, I think it's a problem whether you've got apocatastasis or not because the issue with conversion is problematic in second and third generation children from Christian families. I mean, some of us come from a, a, you know, a background of unbelief and there was a, a significant turning point event. But equally, there are many people who have a journey and they can, cannot for the life of them say when on earth they were quote unquote converted. And um, certainly amongst the, you know, we, we go to an Anglican church now and amongst the people there, you know, there's not much black... I'd say at least half there isn't black and white and um, you're sort of thinking are these people nominal Christians or really born again you know you start to categorize and 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 um, the easy the easy um, division of converted and unconverted is very problematic in that circumstance so I just think it's a, that's a general problem anyway uh, so so it in response to that, I know I, I gave a full talk on it, but this little uh, talk I'm giving tonight is really a story of more the mental journey that how, how the doctrine of apocatastasis might reframe what goes on in your head. So here's what happened to me. You know, we'd be, it was our second day and we were just absorbing the, the sort of darkness of this place. Um, and um, then we went into this house that was a house that had been used by um, the doctors. So the place had a doctor. And there were two doctors, one after the other. And, and there were, I wish I'd taken a photo of the, of the kind of big poster they had of their lives, right? The first doctor seemed to be tremendous. They both seemed to me to be exactly the same. They both had family. They both had kids. The first doctor had, for a start, um, gone into bat for the convicts against the fierce superintendent who wanted to whip the living daylights out of everybody. And, and he had stood up regularly for the convicts against that uh, to his own cost. Um, 
he'd made such an impact that I think when he left, they actually had a photo of a letter written to him by one of the convicts uh, of just sheer love that, that his life, you know, what his life had done for all the convicts. And you just got a picture in the middle of this darkness, of this light that was shining against that, of this one person's now long gone life um, that for probably six to eight years shone a light in a very dark place. The second doctor was the opposite. He just, like everybody else, used the place for his own benefit, um, had kind of corruption charges, not charges, but suspicions against him and was all in favour of whipping the, <laughs> um, and right behind the superintendent. Just totally two personalities in exactly the same role with exactly the same skills. Totally different. And I found myself wondering, I wonder if that first doctor was a Christian and the second doctor was, you know, an unbeliever. It would have suited the stereotype to have the second doctor as some kind of atheist, unbeliever, and the first doctor a Christian. Now, so I, and, and I found myself now looking in this categorization. I was trying to categorize and I was trying to find clues. And um, I think we would all be aware of that impulse. Um, and then I stepped back and watched myself doing that. And I sort of thought, I found that exercise in my mind unhealthy. I can't quite explain it. I, I found the need to sort of pin uh, good behaviour on a card-carrying Christian and the hope that I could pin bad behaviour on, <laughs> on uh, somebody who was an unbeliever. I just found that need rather tribal, you know. And um, the words I wrote down about that state of mind that that easy categorisation were doing me was uh, sort of it was like a defensive and battled... Um, and rather fragile because, you know, what if the, uh, the, the, the good guy was actually an Enlightenment secularist and the bad guy was like Samuel Marsden? Or something? Evangelical. <laughs> Evangelical Christian. Yeah, what if? I mean, again, putting Samuel Marsden again. Was two parts there was two parts to him. Anyway, but it, it led me into this proprietary um, battle that, that I found in my soul unhealthy is what I might say about it. So th this was all subliminal. I'm just wandering around the site. And uh, then I, I kid you not, this is, uh, I walked into, this is the church, uh, which was burned down. And if you've been there, it's quite an amazing place because I just thought all churches should be like this, you know, because you've got an open heaven and uh, walls. And it's quite and I was the only one as I stepped through uh, into this place that was, it was very beautiful. And I kid you not, mid-step as I stepped through, it, it's one of these moments when the Holy Spirit just shines something into your heart. And I, one of my registers of that is that I can't track any antecedent to that thought coming into my mind. It just was not there and a second later it was there and it, didn't seem to be like the normal linkage of associations. It came, to, it just came from like a bolt, you know. It doesn't happen to me very often, but... And the verse that came to me was, every good gift is from above. Just shot into my mind, those words. 
every good gift is from above. By the way, it shows the value of spending a lost youth learning the Bible off by heart because it's there for the whole. I'm sure that I'm sure that if I didn't hadn't memorized that verse sometime in the past, it wouldn't have come. And it's just like, wow, there's something in that. And uh, so then I looked at it, and of course, it's from James, chapter one of all places. And suddenly, it's like when I looked at this little fractal of three verses at the beginning of James, it was like it was a uh, microcosm of a far richer, more magnanimous way to view the whole world, actually through the doctrine of universal grace. So, because um, I then went, that, that was the only phrase that came to my mind, the rest didn't come, I had to look it up. So, um, this, this is it. Um, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above and proceeds from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. This is the NIV. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And I just think that is the beautiful, succinct uh, synthesis of this new picture. It goes, uh, I mean, if you read it in context, um, it's interesting to read it in context because he made the point prior to this that no evil proceeds from God because he's actually writing to people who are in tough times and he's saying, well, don't blame God. I mean, evil is, you know, counted all joy and so on. And he's saying God is the author of all good. So the beginning is, is, you'll notice the language is inclusive. Every good. And, and it's like the Holy Spirit said to me, Tony, you, the big picture is that any um, act of good anywhere on the planet comes from the Father. It doesn't matter whether it comes from a Muslim, an atheist, and recognize and name that and see it as a, as a gift. It's actually a gift to the planet. Just as I saw this little guy's life as a gift there. So, and, and, and so part of the transformation of the mind is to see creation as a gift, but then to recognize and probably declare any good action as proceeding from the Father. It didn't come, its origins was never purely that individual. See the Father behind it and, and he's unchanging. So that's a very inclusive beginning and I certainly have felt you know as this doctrine of apocatastasis and the redemption of the cosmos and the eventual supremacy of the good um, the re re relentless intent of the father to bless all things he, as that gets into your mind you just get a very magnanimous view on the lookout for every shaft of light and you want to name it. But then it gets exclusive, right, about us. He chose to give us birth. I was fascinated to see this in James. I mean, it's really a Nicodemus chapter 3 through the word of truth. So th that we have some kind of birth. That's exclusive, but the powerful part is then the exclusive opening at the end. Why did he do this? in order that we might have proprietary 
exclusive hold of this birth? No, in order that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Uh, that the, the, the exclusiveness of the church, the calling of the church, the gift of the Holy Spirit is actually a first fruits, which, is a, which I found a very fruitful and helpful um, model in my mind that everything I have in the Spirit and therefore in my understanding is really a promise. It's not, it's not the... Um, it's not the finished work, it's actually the beginning of a fuller work. Um, and the role we have is to declare the eventual work. And so I just suddenly saw in that moment in Tasmania, um, particularly having gone through that psychological narrowing of the traditional kind of evangelical frame in my mind of categorization and recognizing how impoverished that left me versus this mindset that on the left would declare now wherever I saw it I declare goodness and I see God behind it doesn't mean that I then recognize the new birth I have we have as a vessel to proclaim that these acts of kindness shafts of light will come to dominate all he created. I didn't expect to see all that in James. I just got the picture that... Um, of course, James was martyred in 62 AD. Um, the picture I got was that he saw what Paul saw, but he, he just didn't have the expensive vocabulary or mind to wrap as many words around, but, he, but this is, might as well be something out of Rome. So, I wanted to share that.